Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, September 14, 1971, Attica Correctional Facility near Buffalo, New York is, I guess, relatively speaking, calm on this day and stable. But in the prior four days, an uprising had rocked the complex. Uh, 39 people killed, including 29 prisoners and 10 prison guards. Days of violence, hostage taking more. The Attica Revolt would become a huge news story, a cultural touchstone, and it would open up a conversation about the horrific conditions inside American prisons that, well, you know, we'll discuss how much that conversation has led to actual change then and now. But here to do that, as always, are Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. And our special guest for this episode is Heather Ann Thompson, professor at the University of Michigan and author of the book Blood in the Water, the Attica Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Great to be here. So when you read uh, accounts of the revolt, they often say that they were, quote, unplanned. And you hear that it was an unplanned revolt. I'm just curious kind of what you make of that framing of the of that word. And I guess that's also a chance to talk a little bit about how this four day uprising began. Was it truly well, unplanned? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends how you think about it. I yeah. mean, it was not some diabolical masterminding of uh, uh, of militants the way that the state of New York would have you believe in terms of it had no purpose, it had no reason, it was meant to just simply destabilize the U.S. government. Uh, but it absolutely was unplanned in the sense that it was uh, an eruption that happened when it happened because of some missteps, some uh, some agitation on the part of the actual prison officials. That said, it was absolutely inevitable. Mm -hmm. uh, the men inside were suffering mightily back in 1971, the way that prison uh, folks are suffering today tremendously, 50 years later. Uh, the places were hell holes in 1971 as they are today. These men were being fed on 63 cents a day. They were given uh, a roll of toilet paper a month. They had abysmal medical conditions. They were, these institutions were brutally racist. Uh, these folks were being kept in their cells way too many hours every single day, uh, being forced to labor for pennies a day. Uh, and everybody in that place had been telling prison officials something has got to change. They had been actually trying to work through the system, telling state officials, writing letters, uh, trying to get some measure of basic human rights in this facility. 
and uh, and really working across political lines, organizing in the yard, uh, trying to make this place more humane um, in every manner they could imagine. When it actually jumps off on September 9th, that was not planned. But was it inevitable? Absolutely. And uh, on this day, uh, September 14th, 1971, while the world thinks things are called, uh, in fact, the men inside are paying a brutal price mm-hmm. for having dared to uprise. They are being tortured. They are being maimed. They are, uh, some of them have been shot six and seven times. Mm. But you're right. The nation doesn't know this. And that's because... Everyone's been lied to. Everyone has been told the prisoners are animals, that they are, they are the ones responsible for what's happened inside of uh, this facility. They're the re- reason why this has gone so wrong. That lie is going to take this nation down a political path from which we are still mm. uh, paying an enormous mm. price called mass incarceration. And so this is an example of we get our history wrong, we get lied to. Uh, Not just the Attica brothers paid a price for that, but every single American is still paying a price for that. So this, I mean... I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so there's so much. It's heavy. It's, it's heavy. He- it's heavy. It's intense. It's even though we we know about Attica, Attica is everywhere, right? The the harsh prison sentences, the harsh treatment that um, people who are incarcerated are experiencing is is this is not an exception in some ways. This is, I mean, across the board, um, being incarcerated is inhumane, especially in the way that it's done in the United States. But to see how a lot of the grievances of these um, men who are incarcerated was sort of dismissed, ignored, maligned. Um, I think is what's just most heartbreaking to me when you realize just how awful they're, they're being treated. Well, what's really incredible is that um, we have accepted this, this idea that it is okay to uh, throw money hand over fist at institutions that we actually own, uh, the public. Uh, we actually trust to do the right thing with absolutely uh, no accountability. Uh, and imagine, just imagine a situation where these were, say, public schools. Would we uh, hand money over the biggest bill ever in American history and just say, you know what, close the doors, lock them, do whatever you want inside? You can have the highest rate of failure imaginable. Uh, you can you can do whatever you want to the people inside of it. And we're just going to keep on handing you money. We don't need to go inside. We don't need to see what you're doing. Uh, but we're going to just trust that whatever you're doing is okay. That's what's happening in our prisons. It's what was happening in 71. But here's the difference. In 71, if you look at polling data, people were starting to wake up to it. When Attica's happening... The American public, even random people in the middle of small town America are going, wow, really? That's Mm. what's going on? There was a measure of sympathy. Uh, The death penalty was actually on its way out. People are starting to feel like prisons really shouldn't be warehouses. We're starting to get a feeling that maybe, hmm, maybe we should start to humanize this. People are kind of supporting things like Miranda rights. This idea that maybe this system is not working is actually people are feeling it right the fact that we take this abrupt turn is by design it is it is 
it is created. And if you want to look at these pivot points where it's created, it's created in the 1960s and 70s. It's created in these apocryphal moments like Attica where people actively have to shift the narrative by saying, you know what? Whoa, you didn't just see what you saw. Uh, no, it actually wasn't law enforcement that was violent. It was the prisoners who were violent. It wasn't the National Guard who was violent. It was the students at Kent State who were violent. Oh, wait, it wasn't the uh, anti-war protesters or the, the police who was violent. It was the anti-war protesters who were violent. And it's sort of these mm -hmm. shifting of narratives that do a tremendous amount of work mm -hmm. in taking us down a different political path. Hmm. Mm. Well, because of the importance of narrative and public opinion to this story as it unfolds, I was wondering if we could maybe talk about what's actually happening inside the yeah. prison when this breaks out. Because, you know, this question of whether it was planned or not, the story, as I understand it, is that there had been this rumor circulating around that a prisoner had been killed the night before. And there's this moment where because of this is a rundown prison with a lot of broken systems, a, a bunch of inmates get trapped in a tunnel and they're terrified because they are surrounded by these brutal and violent guards. They don't know what's going to happen. And that's the, the moment that begins to trigger this uprising. Can you take the story from there and let us know what happens inside of Attica during this uprising? Exactly. So so essentially, you can imagine this is a prison. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of fear on everybody's part. The the uh, the incarcerated men are terrified of uh, the guards. The guards are terrified of the incarcerated men. It's it's a bastion of fear on all sides. And management prison management gets the bright idea on the morning of September 9th that because they are angry at certain men from an incident the night before, they're going to not let them go to rec hall that morning after breakfast. So rather than let them go out this normal door in a tunnel that morning, they're going to lock that door to a tunnel that's going to normally take them out to a yard. And instead, they're going to have to not go out that door and go back to their cells. The problem is they don't tell the guards that that door is going to be locked. They don't tell the men that door is going to be locked. Mm. So imagine a situation in this tiny tunnel. You've got these guards managing these, these lines of about 80 men. And uh, the door is locked. And everybody's panicked. Nobody knows why the door is locked. The the The... The incarcerated men think that they're about ready to be attacked by the guards. The guards have no idea why this door is locked. They think that perhaps they're about ready to be ambushed by the men. All hell begins to break loose. Everyone's backing away from each other, trying to arm themselves with whatever they have. Fists start flying. It's a completely terrifying, chaotic scene. But in that moment, it just so happens that a gate comes crashing down because it is a faulty weld and at this institution oh. is built in the height of the Great Depression, 1931. Mm. It is an archaic institution. The gate comes down, the gate comes down right at the nerve center of the prison, which is Times Square. It allows everybody to access all of the prison. Mm. And within 15 minutes, the entire institution is under control of all of the prisoners. But of course, the phones are archaic. Nobody can get a hold of anybody else. Nobody can get anybody on the line. 
And so everyone is terrified. People are exacting revenge on guards who had been brutal. People are grabbing hostages as a measure of protection for themselves. You can imagine in that moment, it is nothing less than a riot. And you can use that word freely and it's accurate. But here's the deal. Cooler heads prevail. All of that political organizing had been, um, had, had worn fruit. Uh, the men realize this is a toxic, dangerous situation. They move everybody outside into D-Yard, one of the outdoor exercise yards. And then something extraordinary happens, a, a real exercise in participatory democracy. They move everybody outside. They elect men to speak for them out of the, each of the cell blocks. They do have hostages, but they've released the injured uh, guards to get medical care. They surround the, the remaining hostages with prisoners to make sure they're protected. And then they start negotiating with the state of New York for basic human rights. Mm. Yeah, it is mm. this remarkable moment, but then it turns bloody and terrifying pretty quickly. Mm. It, do you blame that on the state of New York coming in pretty ham-fistedly um, into this situation from the outside? Well, we now know a lot that we didn't know at the time. And we now know that while these four days and four nights of negotiations are going on, meanwhile, uh, about 600 state troopers are descending on Attica from all over uh, the state and off-duty corrections officers and park police and Genesee County sheriffs and parks, you name it. Every, every member yeah. of law enforcement is showing up. They are getting angrier and angrier. They're being fed on rumors from the FBI. And yeah. we now know that the state of New York, in particular, Governor Rockefeller, really had no intention of letting this end peacefully. I was able to find documents that really, in my view, conclusively prove that this was yeah. never going to be allowed to end uh, peacefully. And so on the fifth day, when this is uh, clearly possible to end it peacefully, when the hostages make clear that they want this to be settled because they can see the, the rationale for these improvements themselves, um, they're going to send in these men uh, with their own weapons, state-issue mm -hmm. weapons. Uh, they're not going to send them in until everyone has already been felled by CN and CS gas, which, by the way, is a powder it is, it's clinging to people's mucous membranes. They are vomiting. They are blinded. Goodness. They are already completely, uh, completely unable to fight back. And they don't have any weapons. Uh, they have, you know, sticks and, mm -hmm. you know, homemade shanks and so forth. But they don't have any firearms. And that's when they come in guns blazing. And it is a massacre. Mm. And the 10 people who die... Um, Originally, right, the state claims that they were killed by prisoners, and it turns out that all 10 of them were actually shot by police. Who, well, and that's uh, the key, right? right. Mm. Because that story is the story that is first told in that first half an hour outside of the prison where the media is assembled from around yeah. the world. And that story goes out, and here's what's key, because this is this is the, the rubber meets the road. That story goes out on the front page of the New York Times 
the LA Times, and because it goes out on the UPI and AP, it goes out to every small town newspaper in America Mm. that the prisoners killed the hostages, that they actually castrated one of them and shoved Mm. his testicles in his mouth. And of course, remember here, the white media does not even need to corroborate this story because it fulfills their yep, racist yep. imagination. This is a lynching narrative that they just yeah. believe. Mm-hmm. And that story gets corrected, but it's too late. Yeah. And that's the key. But wait, sorry, that that detail about the castration was was made up whole cloth? Completely. Wow. It was a bald-faced lie. And they not only lie, but they say they saw it with their own eyes mm. and they had footage of it. The thing that's so amazing about that is that it's this visceral tale of just the most grotesque violence. It doesn't happen. But as you were talking about earlier, on September 14th, what's happening inside the prison is actually this deep, deeply cruel and grotesque set of tortures that the the people who are imprisoned are going through um, and you you wonder about the level of just sadism that infuses mm. both the story that's told to the world but also describes the conditions that are actually happening that people aren't hearing about and racist we have to be really really clear here mm. it isn't just that this is society against prisoners this is punctuated at every turn mm. by racist sadism. The, the man who is accused of the the castration is a huge man. His nickname, his actually given, his, his self-appointed name was Big Black. He was mm. a huge guy. He was the captain of the football team and head of security. That is who they fingered as the man who had castrated uh, one of the guards. Mm. That is who laid on a table for six hours. That they put a football under his neck and they said if it dropped from his neck, that they would shoot him in the head. He had every reason to believe that was true. They dropped shells on mm. him. They tortured him for hours. Goodness. And they and they had took pictures of it. The state police took pictures of this. And they watched people paraded around and just watched this happen for hours and hours and hours. And um, that was just the tip of the iceberg. So, and in the white, there was a lot of white prisoners in this institution, we should know. And every one of them that was tortured in the subsequent days and weeks, every beating they got was punctuated by a racial epithet for having stood with the black inmates that were in there. Mm. So again, this is, to your point, Nicole, this was so punctuated by the reverse as as mm. of course all racist violence is right it's the white racial imagination that is in fact punctuated by by their own race you know mm. racist violence mm. this is just like um i wonder and and this is a question i just have about um because i know you've conducted copious interviews and i mean the the level of research that it took to produce this astounding book it's just first of all bravo to you for that but can you talk about some of the interviews that you conducted what um either what the common sort of theme or narrative was from the people that were incarcerated how they i hate to use the word recovered from this or how how they got through this well i have to i have to say you know the the irony of doing this book is that um the research journey 
could be a book unto itself. It took 13 years to do this book in part because you, you should also know that the state of New York still has not opened the records. When I started this book, I was deeply naive. I just assumed as a historian, and we know the story, Kelly, right? We just, you know, we all know the story as, you know, uh, academics. You just, you think we're going to go in the archives. We're going to write this book. Well, I didn't understand that, you know, there's no statute of limitations on murder. The state of New York still hasn't opened this story. So mm. it was a journey to figure out who had the copy, who had the original. Um, I lucked out. I came upon documents they didn't know was there. That's how I was finally able to name shooters after 45 years that had mm. been protected. That's how I finally was able to know the depth of the cover-up. But I could never have actually told this story without people sharing, as you just mm -hmm. said, their personal trauma. And so mm -hmm. I could have bumbled my way into this. And what I, and you'll notice in my book, I call them conversations. I just walked into, bumped into myriad conversations with people because it was too traumatic. Yeah. It was too raw. And people had to be able to just say, you know, I, I, I can't talk about this or I don't want to talk about this or or I just told you something, but absolutely that can't be in the book mm -hmm. or absolutely I, I can't even imagine including that um, because this is, of course, continued trauma. It is ongoing because yeah. the state of New York still will not apologize. Mm. Yeah. So that controlling of the narrative, you know, continues right. to this day. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if we can just talk a little bit about this as a cultural touchstone and um, at, at that time and, and, and ongoing. Um, Kelly and Nikki don't know this, but I'm on a quest to name drop every Sydney Lumet movie over the course of uh, <laughs> our series. And so, of course, Dog Day Afternoon, one of my favorite movies nice. of all time. There's that famous scene where Al Pacino, who's in a hostage situation of his own, starts chanting Attica, Attica. You know, I'm sure you get this question all the time about that scene, but like, you know, what does that represent of this as a touchstone moment um, where it can be included in a movie like that? And moreover, like we have this controlled narrative on the one hand, right? Um, but then we do also seem to have, as you were hinting at, this real sense as it, maybe in a sort of broader, more diffuse cultural sense of, well, let's think about what's going on inside of our prisons. So just paint that, yeah, paint that cultural landscape at the moment. I think it's really, really interesting how Attica has uh, really a dual legacy and a dual cultural yeah. touchstone, if you will. On the one hand, everything that we've just been talking about is so fundamentally true, which is that Attica to so much of America represents the worst of the worst. It represents all that is wrong with quote unquote, black America, prisons, crime, violence. If you wanna just say, if you wanna just connote criminality and the worst of the worst, you just use the word Attica. And in that sense, Attica comes up culturally and it comes up on the Sopranos as a reference. Mm -hmm. It comes up in SpongeBob SquarePants, the cartoon. It comes up. It comes up in rap lyrics uh, in the, you know, 80s and 90s to kind of mean kind of the end of the road, the, you know, the, 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 the gangsta violence, the worst of the worst in some respects. On the other hand, it also has a different kind of touchstone legacy. It's about resistance. It's about, uh, it's about one of the most incredible, extraordinary uh, legal defense efforts in American history. Mm -hmm. You know, my book is a third about the uprising, but it's also the whole rest of it's about the the, the fight for justice mm -hmm. that follows Attica. 
And I mean, the the fight to defend the Attica brothers, I think, is a, a, a legal defense effort that truly rivals any other in American history, probably even more kind of Herculean than even that of the Scottsboro Boris or anything else. So it also is a touchstone for resistance. It is not accidental that every prison uprising today, the most recent, you know, the St. Louis jail uprising, you know, it's Attica, Attica, Attica that people still chant. Um, prison strikes today, it's all about Attica. And the Sidney Lumet film was a very interesting kind of bridge moment. 1975 was this kind of cusp year, right? I mean, on the one hand, I mean, it, it, there's this desperation that Al Pacino, it's an end of an era kind of film, you know, he, he, yeah. he's gone going down and you know it. And he's also kind of this white working class kind of hero. It, it, it's a very odd film in many ways that he's the one chanting it. I mean, I'm not a film critic, so I'm, I'm the wrong person to be analyzing me. To me, just personally, I always... It's a very uh, poignant uh, kind of end of an era, dual legacy of Attica chanting of it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's what makes mm. it so compelling. It's just this like desperate, almost pathetic. Um, you're trying to align yourself with like actual revolutionaries in actual harsh conditions where he's, you've sort of put yourself in a two bit bind <laughs> of your own making. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but yes. Those and are, you're not them. Yeah, mm. exactly. Exactly. Mm. So I'm curious what the result of all of this is. You've talked about this participatory democracy and these demands that the people who were imprisoned were um, asking for. Obviously, it ends in this horrific bloodshed and violence. What becomes of the reforms that they were asking for? Well, it's, it's this is, of course, the million-dollar question, and the 50th anniversary is such a great time to to think about it. I just actually, it's, it's out today. I just did a piece in Time Magazine on exactly this question. It's, um, it's not good. It's mm. not good. 50 years after Attica, um, my answer to it is that we are worse off. We are much worse mm. off than we were 50 years ago, and there's a deep irony in it. On the one hand, the Attica brothers touch off despite all the horror that happened to them personally they inspired and touched off tremendous reforms in fact uh you know we got uh things like estelle versus gamble which was the tremendous uh, reform in the supreme court to medical care in prisons we got relaxed visitation rules we got um better training for guards we got all kinds of really positive things that came after attica so that's the upside the problem is the backlash that we've been talking about all this time won the day. Mm. And because of that, we now have so many more pre people incarcerated than we ever did. Mm. The racial disparity is much, much more severe than it was. The amount of you know deaths in custody, number of solitary, the amount of solitary confinement people do, the number of children in prison, the amount of life sentences we hang out, uh, hand out. Um, the actual conditions mm. are just so appreciably worse mm. that that means that the de jure de facto problem with segregation in general is on steroids in mm -hmm. prison. Mm -hmm. So uh, at 50 years, uh, it is time to uh, to resurrect what the uh, I think at the Attica brothers called attention to 50 years ago, which is we can do better. 
Uh, God knows every other country has figured this out. Mm -hmm. uh, every other Western democracy has figured this out better than we did. You know, we, we, we can do differently. We, we don't have to do it this mm. way. And uh, so that's that's the legacy of Attica that I'm hoping we're going to we're going to think on at mm. 50 years. Well, your your book is a big part of that, and we really appreciate you coming on. Again, Heather Ann Thompson, the book is Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. Here we are 50 years later. Um, but thank you so much for doing this. It was fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Take care. And uh, Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. Thanks, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, listener-supported, artist-owned podcasts. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. Kala Nakua helps with transcripts. Julie Shapiro is executive producer for Radiotopia. Get in touch with us if you have any questions or comments or ideas for the show. You can email us thisdaypod at gmail.com or you can find a form at thisdaypod.com where you can also get our full archives, transcripts, and learn lots more about the show. Follow us on social at thisdaypod on Instagram and Twitter where we are posting stuff each and every day. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon. Over 40 prison staff were taken hostage and Elliot Barkley became a charismatic spokesperson, issuing more than two dozen demands. The entire prison populace, that means each and every one of us here, has set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of the prisoners here and throughout the United States. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money! You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us/podcast to find out more. Radio Tokyo.